Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Ron Dennis was a company man since leaving Cooper in 1979 to work for the McLaren Formula One team, Ron had a burning obsession with perfection and winning. He was able to realize that vision by taking control of McLaren in 1981. In a monumental run, Ron turned the team around, taking a team with no wins in between 1978 and 1980 to 10 drivers championships and 7 constructors championships within 28 years. Bruce McLaren would have been proud. But on Tuesday, November 15, 2016, McLaren Group shareholders ended Ron Dennis's tenure with the company. After a 35-year run, this was not how Ron wanted things to end. The company was his life, and he understandably felt the board's decision was completely unfair. Who else had as much sweat equity in McLaren as Ron Dennis? Who else had devoted their entire adult life to the cause? No one. At this point in time, few people associated McLaren with the company's namesake. As far as most racing fans were concerned, McLaren F1 might as well have been called Dennis F1. How did it come to this? How did McLaren's most calculating leader lose the favor of his company, and how did it affect their team and cars? To answer that, we need to go back to 1970. This is Past Gas. Past Gas Podcast. Hey guys, welcome to the Past Gas Podcast. If you like Past Gas, please help us grow by giving us a good rating and a nice review on the podcast platform of your choice. It'll really help us out, and I really appreciate that. So thank you. All right, now for the show. Anyway, welcome to Past Gas. As with me as always are my two co-hosts. I got James Pumphrey. Hi. <laughs> and Joe Weber. Hey. 
Thank and you. then the guy talking with that brilliant intro is Nolan Sykes. Thank you. Hello. Yes. Uh, today is part three. YouTube sensation oh, Nolan Sykes. Uh, today is part three. My favorite automotive YouTuber, Nolan Sykes. Thank I you. have to say automotive because I am a huge, huge Logan Paul fan. Oh, boy. <laughs> I'm a Paul head, everybody. That guy is tall. Is when he? we saw him, yeah, when, remember when we saw him at the streamies? Yeah, he's not taller than you. He's taller than me, which makes him tall. Yeah, you know. Mm -hmm. Anyway, yeah, uh, yeah. I was too um, blinded by the fact that we won a streamy for best sports channel. Best sports channel. Yeah, that was. Look at me, Dad. I'm an award-winning <laughs> sports guy. That was a strange, strange evening for sure. Uh, this is part three of our series on McLaren. Uh, today we're going to be diving into uh, Ron Dennis, as you uh, probably already guessed. And his uh, his legacy with the company and where the car company is today. It's a thick boy. It's it thick. He's a he's a particular boy too. Yeah, he's he likes his things clean, mm -hmm. neat, mm -hmm. well lit. Mm -hmm. Flowers to be lively and smell well. Yeah, uh, just smell well. <laughs> there's a a story about Ron Dennis in which uh, he completed a, a renovation on his garden, oh. uh, and there were eight fountains. And when you turned them on, they turned on one by one. Instead of all at once, uh, he spent hundreds of thousands of dollars to have the system replaced, so they all turned on at once. That's the kind of guy Ron wow. Dennis is. Yes. Uh, but we will get there. Uh, shall, shall we dive in? Let's do it. All right. Bruce McLaren Motor Racing was in absolute shock after the loss of their leader, Bruce McLaren. The intrepid Kiwi had lost his life testing their latest Cam-Am race car at the legendary Goodwood Circuit. Bruce was the beating heart of McLaren and, as such, had a hand in nearly all of its operations. The Bruce McLaren Motor Racing Group had a stable of unique race cars, each suited to different disciplines. Uh, there was the aforementioned Can-Am division, specializing in outlandish prototypes unrestricted by the class's lean rulebook. McLaren also was developing a road car to compete in Group 4 road racing called the M6TG. Rules dictated that 50 road-legal cars had to be produced to be race-legal, so... McLaren eventually abandoned the project because they couldn't produce that many cars. As we know now, though, road cars would later become a huge part of the McLaren story. Uh, BMMR also had its hand in the IndyCar pot over here in America. They had found success building innovative oval racers, setting the first ever 180-mile-an-hour lap around Indy. Finally, McLaren was also competing in Formula One racing in Europe with mixed results. They're... they're Name kind of sounds like an engine, too. Nice. Nice one. <laughs> With Bruce gone, the task of finding someone to fill his shoes looked borderline impossible. But Bruce hired smart people. According to former Formula One journalist Alan Henry, perhaps Bruce's greatest gift was the minus touch he possessed in selecting suitably qualified confederates. Sharp thinking and like-minded operators absolutely like himself. Cool. Yeah, cool. <laughs> the yeah, so, like, I mean, that's kind of how you run a successful business. If you want like to thrive. You, someone who thinks they're really good looking dates someone that looks exactly like them. Oh. Ooh. Do you ever have those friends? Yeah. You. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <clears throat> so he hired smart people, and those like-minded, smart people did the smartest thing they could when they decided that they would not try to replace Bruce McLaren. 
The reality was that Bruce McLaren did not have the time to directly oversee every facet of Bruce McLaren motor racing. There was plenty of qualified personnel ready to step up. Investor and McLaren partner Teddy Mayer had been assisting and running the company since he helped found it in 1963. Inside McLaren, Bruce was kind of seen as the cool dad. We know how that is. Uh, we're well, all kind of cool dads that don't it, right? <laughs> yeah. None, none of us have it. kids. None of us have kids, but we're all cool. <laughs> I think I'm like the cool dad of Donut. Yeah, I'd agree. And Jesse's the Teddy. <laughs> yeah, uh, and Teddy, well, he's a harder man to please. Mm-hmm. He, he didn't shy away from making the hard decisions and, you know, talking people sternly, okay? Alongside Teddy was McLaren's chief designer, Gordon Coppock, who had been plucked from the UK's premier jet engine developer, National Gas Turbine Establishment. That's like the U. Yeah, sure. Thank you. I'll take it. Uh, Gordon helped design the uber-dominant M8A Can-Am car that we discussed last episode. There's also Alistair Caldwell. Hey, that's you, Joe. (laughs) Alistair. McLaren's F1 race manager and chief mechanic. Like I said, Bruce hired smart people, and while he was gone, his hand-chosen lineup was eager to fill in and make Bruce proud. McLaren's Formula One operation was not in good shape around this time. The team built their first real F1 car five years earlier in 1965, which put them behind other teams that had been around for a lot longer, teams like Ferrari, Alfa Romeo, and Lotus. But what McLaren lacked in heritage, they were making up for in innovation. Years before Bruce passed, McLaren produced a very advanced F1 prototype, codenamed the M2A. The car was constructed with a groundbreaking for the time material called malite, which is basically balsa wood sandwiched in between two sheets of aluminum. It sounds crazy, but this material was lighter and stiffer than steel and marked the beginning of McLaren's love affair with exotic materials. This uh, There was another F1 car that never made it to the race, but I think it was a Cosworth uh, Lotus collaboration. And it was it was like crazy arrow, and it was the same thing, just like aluminum with wood, aluminum and plywood. Yeah, yeah. it's crazy. Balsa well, wood. Yeah, imagine doing 150 plus in, in a, a uh, yeah balsa wood. Yeah. <laughs> well, F1 cars still have uh, a right. sheet of plywood on the bottom of them. Yeah, that uh, it's a old tradi- like it's a rule, basically dictated by uh, tradition. But like if that wood is basically completely shaved off by the end of the race. Yep. then that means that your car's too low. Yeah, and you get DQ'd. Yeah, pretty cool. In the years following more Formula One development and a few race wins, McLaren took what they learned in Europe and Can-Am to Indianapolis. To win the Indy 500 back then was America's equivalent of winning Le Mans in France, and I would argue that it still is true today. Yeah, it's a huge deal. Their first Indy car, the M15, was not a success. The car utilized the transmission and rear suspension from McLaren's M8 series Can-Am cars and was also the lightest Indy car present in 1970. Things looked promising. Driver Denny Holm set the fastest lap at practice. Unfortunately, a fuel filling mechanism failed and sprayed gas all over Denny and the engine. The fuel set alight and badly burned Denny. McLaren's second driver Chris Ammon was reportedly unable to get the car around the track. Two too replacement, just too difficult. Too hard to really handle. Really hard to really hard to drive. It's just too buff a horse. Yep. Two replacement drivers were found, and driver Carl Williams was able to finish ninth in the M15. Not exactly a strong start for a team that was used to Can-Am domination. It was a few weeks after that race that Bruce was killed at Goodwood. Yeah. 
McLaren returned to Indy the next year with a new car, the M16. <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> instead of taking inspiration from the world of Can-Am, designer Gordon Kopic opted instead to look at the world of Formula U. Yeah, they're going to take what they learned there mm -hmm. and really bring it over. It makes more sense. The cars are a lot more yeah. similar shapes. Well, because that's true. And like, the, just at the time, Indy Oval was kind of its own thing, like really separated. Indy was really focused on oval racing. So they were trying everything they could to really nail an oval design. And turns out Formula One cars are just the best race cars. So that's probably the best thing to drive. Do anymore. anything. Yeah. yeah. Except for maybe Baja. I would not do that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, even though McLaren had an active F1 program at the time, that's not where the new IndyCar would draw inspiration. Kopic looked at Lotus, one of their competitors. By F1 standards, the Lotus 72 was extremely wedge-shaped. It looks like a doorstop almost with mm. wheels. Yeah, I remember that car. Kopic believed that if he built a similar car, it would dominate the oval, where the wedge would push the car's tires into the track. And turns out he was right. He also included nose and tail mounted airfoils that took the M16 to the next level. On the car's first trip to Indy in 1971, driver Mark Donahue was able to secure pole position with ease. Donahue was able to beat that the next year when he won the 72 Indianapolis 500 and earned the $218,000 prize. Dang, that's a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, so there's McLaren's first Indy win. Um, and it, it's, it was kind of like an open secret in the pit that they kind of copied the 72, mm -hmm. uh, but nobody really gave him any for it. Yeah. Cause their founder had just died. Yeah. <laughs> uh, around this time, a young race mechanic by the name of Ron Dennis had started his own race team. Ron had started his career at just 18 years old at none other than Cooper Race Cars, working in the same factory that Bruce McLaren had just a few years before. Ron worked with driver Jochen Rint, prepping in, prepping and dialing his race car. I'm pretty sure it's Jochen. It's spelled G-O-C-H-E-N. I'm going to say Jochen. Say Jochen. Jochen, Jochen Rint. Gochen. Gochen. Jochen Rint. I forgot how to say it now. When Rint moved to Brabham... <laughs> when... <laughs> When Rint moved to Brabham <laughs> Racing in 1968, Ron went with him. There's a very, uh, a lot of, um, not parallels, oh yeah, parallels between Ron and Bruce. You know, they worked at Cooper, worked with Brabham. Um, kind of interesting. Uh, yeah, so Ron went with uh, Rint to Brabham. There, Ron Dennis uh, befriended fellow mechanic Neil Trundle. Neil Trundle. 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 Hey, Trundle bed, come over and fix my car. <laughs> Don't call me that. <laughs> when Jack then you maybe you should stop folding up under a normal bed. Damn. <laughs> it's comfortable. Uh when Jack Brabham of Brabham Racing decided to retire in 1971, Ron and Neil didn't want to look for work on another team. They said, "Screw it. We'll start it own." Well, they, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Sorry. <laughs> start it own. Start it own. They said, "Screw it. We'll start our own." Thank you. Uh Ron and Trundle called it Rondel Racing. God, dude, what is with British guys? That's how they came up with TVR too. Really? Yeah, his name was Trevor, and he called originally it was Trev Car. <laughs> yeah. And then they, he got a partner, and the guy was like, uh, uh, "Trev Car is a bad name." Uh, but then they just took the first, middle, and last 
letter of Trevcar and decided on TVR. <laughs> it's kind of like how MF Doom does projects, or like Danger Mouse does projects with other people. Uh huh. Danger Doom. J Lib. J. Oh, that's a different one. That's Ad Lib. That's Mad Lib and J. J Dilla. J Dilla. Mad Lib. J Lib. Mm. Uh, yeah, so Rondel Racing, they st- uh, were, they competed in Formula 2 between 1971 and 1973. Meanwhile, at McLaren, the M16 proved to be a big leap for the team. The car was winning Indy races through the 70s, and even though McLaren would eventually pull out of Indy in 76, private teams continued to drive updated versions of the M16 as late as 1981. That's 11 years it was just a really solid car uh, that, you know, as time went on, it wasn't as competitive, but it was good enough for smaller teams uh, to afford a car and fight for the midfield. That's crazy. McLaren was doing well in the mid-70s. The Indy program was a success, and Formula One was looking promising. Driver Denny Holm was driving all sorts of cars all over the world. Formula One, Can-Am, Indy, sports cars, whatever. Denny did it. What Denny couldn't really do, though, was bring in big-time sponsor money. Sponsorships were relatively new at the time, um, which is really hard to imagine because race cars are defined by their sponsors. They're just like billboards. They're billboards with wheels. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. A rule change in 1968 allowed teams to display advertising on their cars from any company, not just ones that were automotive in nature. Yeah, so kind of people think that like this rule change kind of sold the sport out mm-hmm. but really sponsorships have been around for a long time yeah they were just very niche and smaller on the car so yeah. like you'd see like champion spark plug uh-huh. um uh paint jobs on or like not stickers but like painted on stickers yeah essentially i mean it's sort of like what we're going through a donut like initially all of our sponsorships were you know automotive related and still a lot of them are but it really is a big step for us to be able to step out and start getting stuff like Bombas or Raycons. Raycon, you know, know, it's it's a big step and a huge, you know, milestone for us to have sponsorships from non-endemic brands. Mm -hmm. If you could start non-endemic, oh, that's a good word. If you could start an F1 team and just like pick your sponsors, what would they be? That's um probably Adidas. Adidas, yeah. You could have like Jonathan Davis would hang out in your yeah, (laughs) yeah. Adidas and like Oakley. Mm-hmm. Okay. Would be cool. <laughs> yeah. So like anything that came out in the early 2000s. <laughs> yeah. As, yeah. I'm not gonna go super niche. I think that like Coca-Cola would be really. B- oh, dude, just like a red car. Yeah, with, the with like white. It. The white like sweep down that the would side be, would be dude. pretty sweet. Uh, Apple would be a very cool sponsor. Dude, I think the, the spot like the paint job uh, possibilities are really yeah. cool. You, you've seen the Apple. Uh, the Apple Porsches, yeah, yeah. those yeah. are so cool. those are great. Yeah, I would do like it would be cool if, if you had Apple to do like a retro design for a race. Yeah, that'd be really cool. Yeah. Yep. I think I would have like Sinclair gas station. <laughs> oh, the, the dinosaur. dinosaur! Yeah, yeah, yeah that's cool. really cool. Yeah, or like a Tide F1 car would be kind of cool too. Tide would be cool. They do test on animals. Oh, so I guess. <laughs> <sighs> so that's a plus, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wait. Animals are going to test drive my car? <laughs> I don't think that's, that's a good idea. That's not funny. Um. <laughs> Legally, dogs can't get driver's licenses. They just can't. Nobody, none of them have passed the test yet. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> if they can be mayors, they should be able to drive. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the mayor should be able to drive his own car. Okay, so in an instant, gone were the national racing colors like white, silver, and blue. Teams had bills to pay, and the only color that could help was green. Nice, dude. For money, <laughs> <Nice>. baby. <laughs> One driver that benefited immensely from this rule change was Brazilian Emerson Fittipaldi. The son of an F1 journalist, Emerson moved from Brazil to the UK as a young lad to chase his Formula 1 dreams, and it was working out. It was. In 1972, he became the youngest champion ever at only 25 years old, driving for Lotus behind the wheel of a Lotus 72, the same car McLaren had pretty much totally kind of copied for Indy. In 1973, he followed up with a second-place finish in the Drivers' Championship. This result kind of pissed Emerson off. Lotus had a stacked driver lineup with Emerson being the number one and prodigy, Roder and prodigy Ronnie Peterson in the number two spot. It's in the best interest for a Formula One team to have the two best drivers it can. If one driver has an off day, the other still has a chance to win and grab more points. But if both your drivers are too good, you run the risk of them battling each other and leaving the door open for another team to win. Elf Tyrell driver Jackie Stewart, my boy, was able to capitalize on this inner team rivalry and slip right by Emerson and Ronnie. So in 1974, Emerson Fittipaldi left Lotus. Where would he go? He was a top driver and top drivers demand top pay. Who could afford him? Well, lucky for our story, McLaren had just gotten a nice chunk of change and was looking to pay out. That's right. So it seems like this happens a lot in F1, right? There's just big egos. People are really good. Yes. Uh, like a good example would be um, like at Mercedes right now, Lewis Hamilton is, our, I mean, without a doubt, the best driver on the grid, possibly ever. Uh, and his teammate, uh, uh, Valtteri Bottas, also a very good driver. Very talented, but not at the same level as Lewis. You got to have, it seems like to have like the most successful F1 team, you got to have like an alpha and a beta, right? Like someone that's not. Maybe. I mean, we'll see later in the story that's not necessarily true, okay, but it okay. can cause problems. Yeah. We'll get back to more past gas, but right now, a word from our sponsors. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. 
It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. McLaren was able to secure a sponsorship deal with Philip Morris for the 1974 season. Oh, we love Philip Morris here on Pascal. <laughs> Philip, <laughs> if that name sounds familiar, uh, that's because they're a massive multinational corporation that specializes in the sale of tobacco. The deal stipulated that McLaren would sport a livery. JK, we don't like cigarettes. <laughs> don't smoke. The deal stipulated that McLaren would sport a livery inspired by Philip Morris's best-selling brand, you know. Marlboro. Newport. <laughs> Marlboro. I mean, this is the birth of one of the most iconic yep, absolutely. The, racing liveries The red ever. and white McLaren. It's like, I do not support cigarettes, do not smoke, but Marlboro red F1 cars are so sick. It, and like the color that they chose is like this like orangish, yeah. reddish color. It's um, like an in-between between Marlboro red on the cigarette package uh-huh. and the orange of their previous uh, cars. Yeah, but yeah. do you know why it was that color? No. So it would appear red on 70s TVs. Whoa. Yeah, so like in order to appear to be the red color from the box of cigarettes, they have to be this like weird orange color um, because 70s TVs kind of sucked. That's very cool. Um, and they, it just stuck. Is that... It- do they kind of do the same thing today? Uh, I've never seen F1 cars in person, but you went to Austin last year. Mm-hmm. Did they look different in person? Uh, no, because TVs rule now. Yeah. Okay. TVs I think are... the saturation on 70s TVs is like horrible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but surprisingly, you know what the smell at F1 is? Sweet. You just smell brakes. Oh, yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, like you, it doesn't smell like race gas or you smell brakes. I think going to an F1 race had really changed my perspective on it because like F1 has such a a reputation now of being very like clean, professional, sophisticated. But the, but racetracks are smelly places, you know? Yeah, but all the racetracks that F1 races at are really nice. I know, but like the smells that race cars uh-huh. produce are like yeah. still pretty pungent. Yeah. Know? I mean, you smell brakes and everyone's wearing really expensive athleisure yeah. <laughs> and the pit at F1 is just like even compared to big race series like NASCAR or Indy like the pits at F1 like it's as if a set designer was no like way. oh the fanciest racing it, there's just like computers yeah. everywhere and like even from team to team like their pit really reflects like their attitude yeah. and like sort of their reputation like the Red Bull um, pit was like everyone was like really nice and like it's like very bright yeah. and like kind of looks like an Apple store um, but then like the Mercedes one is like really dark and like, you're not really allowed to go hang yeah. out and like, there's just like computers <laughs> everywhere. Like then, it, it's, it's <laughs> like a uh, Drago from Rocky. <laughs> then you've got Haas where all, it seems like all their, uh, pit team 
everyone is mandated to have sleeve tattoos <laughs> yeah, and a beard. Yeah, yeah. I kind of want to hang out there. Dude, I would love to hang out with the yeah, hospital. Yeah, that's what's sure. the most confusing about watching that Netflix show. It's like, I don't, I can't tell anyone apart from the team in the team. Like everyone looks exactly the same. <laughs> the only no, the is it the German dude who Gun- has that Gunter Steiner? Yeah, yeah. He's I don't know about F one. He's like really fun to watch. He's, he's great. Yeah. Yeah. Drive to Survive season two. Uh, we are not affiliated with it, but uh, it's a great show. Check it out. <laughs> anyway. So, you know, we'll, we support any uh, time they make a big budget show out of I mean, it's great. Cars. How many people, how many casual fans are now into the sport now right. because of that show? Watch Drive to Survive so that maybe we can make a TV show one day. Yeah. Show the, yeah. Let's show Netflix there's a market. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. Nice. Yeah. So back to the iconic. Right. So McLaren would use some of that marble or money to lure Emerson Fittipaldi to their team, bringing his Texaco oil money sponsorship with them as well. All of a sudden, McLaren had a top driver and tons of cash, and all they needed now was a car. But McLaren wasn't the only team with a Marlboro money hookup. Back at Rondell Racing, Ron Dennis was able to secure funding from French oil firm Motul. The deal was super lucrative and super lubricative. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Enough money that Ron and Neil set ambitions higher than Formula 2. They wanted to race in Formula E. Ron hired designer Roy Jessup to design a car for the 1974 season, where Rondell would race against the likes of McLaren. But, unfortunately, the oil crisis happened, which we will do on an entire episode on. And that meant Motul had to pull their support of the project. So Rondell shifted their focus back to Formula 2. With Motul gone, Rondell went on the hunt for another sponsor. They were able to secure a much bigger deal with Philip Morris. Ron Dennis got the ball rolling on another racing team called Project 4, which would later run cars in the BMW M1 Pro Car Championship. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. What you need to know right now, though, is that Ron Dennis was more of a businessman than a mechanic and knew that keeping the client happy was the best way to survive. So he was in regular contact with Philip Morris marketing director John Hogan. Just talk to the guy on the phone all the time. Yeah. Uh, back at McLaren, the team was hard at work on a new car for Emerson Fittipaldi. They would make improvements to the already stellar M23, and by the end of the 1973 season, consensus in the pits was that the McLaren was the quickest car on the grid, even faster than the Lotus 72. McLaren drivers Denny Holm and Peter Gethin were able to grab some wins that year, but the championship still eluded Bruce McLaren's team. Now that they had some dough, though, that looked like it was about to change. Emerson loved testing the M23, giving McLaren valuable insight on how to make their good car even better. According to designer Gordon Kopic, Emerson enjoyed testing even more than racing. McLaren spent tons of time testing the car at Paul Ricard circuit over in France, making adjustments such as a longer wheelbase to increase stability and wider wheel track to improve grip coming out of corners. Everyone knew that the M23 was fast, but with Fittipaldi's input, the car hooked up now too. The revised M23 proved to be a real winner at the track. In a season-long fight against Ferrari drivers Nicky Lauda and Clay Regazzoni and former teammate Ronnie Peterson, Emerson came out on top, winning his second driver's championship and McLaren's first-ever Formula One world title. The Marlboro money had clearly paid off, and I believe Bruce would have been very proud. 
The next season ended with Fittipaldi finishing second behind Lauda and McLaren finishing third behind Ferrari in Brabham. It wasn't the result they were looking for, but McLaren wouldn't have to wait long for another title. Enter James Hunt. James Hunt was a young racer from Belmont, UK, who first learned to drive at the age of 11, behind the wheel of a neighbor's tractor. He was the son of a London-based stockbroker and, as such, had the connections to make his racing dreams come true. He's a little bit of a rich kid. He's a rich boy. It takes a lot of money to get into this stuff, right? It does. His racing career began behind the wheel of a Formula Ford 1600 car, a low-tier open-wheel series. He moved up quickly to Formula 3, where he gained the reputation of being a bit of a hothead. In a 1970 race at the Crystal Palace, Hunt was battling for third with Dave Morgan. Coming out of the last corner on the last lap, Morgan collided with Hunt's car and sent them both off track. James jumped out of his car on an active track with cars flying by and pushed Morgan to the ground, then punched him (laughs) in his freaking face. There's a video of it online. Uh, It is insane. (laughs) This would be the first of many instances like this in Hunt's career. He was known as a great driver, but also kind of a jerk. His temper on track led to a few crashes that ended his races early. He, like like you said, Janice, he was a very talented guy, but if he got too heated, he was prone to make mistakes. Yeah, and he looks just like that guy who plays Thor. Yeah, that's weird. Mm. Uh, as a result, Hunt had a hard time getting a seat after He was point. hot. He was a hot dude, and he got he, so many good-looking dude. He got yeah. so many babes. He, he was a real Joe uh, Namath. Vibe. He had a patch on his racing suit uh, that said "Sex Breakfast of Champions." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's he, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> As a result, uh, Hunt had a hard time getting a seat after Formula Three. That was until one Lord Alexander Firmer Hesketh stepped well, in. Oh, I'm yeah. Lord Alexander Firmer Hesketh. Uh, when Lord Hesketh was five years old, he inherited a 3,000-acre estate that included a village as as well as its own racetrack. Yes, this is my village and my racetrack. <laughs> I'm five years old. <laughs> Safe to say, dude had the dough, and he established his own racing team in 1972 at just 22 years old. How awesome would that, <laughs> that be, dude? That would be so sick. <laughs> uh, I would love to have a racetrack. Dude. Oh, yeah, dude. What? Let's get Jimmy to like buy a little <laughs> town in a racetrack. Hell yeah. Shortly after <laughs> Lord Jimmy. Uh <laughs> shortly after, Lord Hesketh met with James Hunt, who was fresh out of work. Uh, you know, beating dudes up. Uh Hesketh's team was Wait, a that mo- was his work. <laughs> <laughs> Hesketh's team was a motley crew of aristocratic scallywags who also loved racing. Hunt would fit right in. Hesketh hooked James up with a Formula Three car of the team's own design. Uh, between 72 and 74, Hesketh Racing spent a lot more money until they were racing with the big boys in Formula One. Uh, the Hesketh car was not great, but with Hunt's talent behind the wheel, he was able to grab a few podiums before the sponsorless team ran out of money and closed their doors. It was a team running off that trust fund, basically. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> such a bad idea. You, if To our listeners, if you're going to start a race team, and you already have a lot of money, don't use your money. Yeah. Uh, there's that saying, like, how do you make a huge fortune into a small fortune? Auto racing. Yeah. How do you how do you make a million dollars racing? Start with a billion dollars. Yeah, that yeah. one's better. <laughs> they say that about wineries, too. Really? I believe yeah. that. 
In a decision that shocked McLaren preceding the 1976 season, Emerson Fittipaldi left the team. He was like, I'm out. He left for the Fittipaldi family team called Kopusercar. Mm -hmm. So that left an opening for a new driver. And a few days after Fittipaldi's exit, James Hunt was now assigned McLaren driver next to teammate Jochen Mass. Jochen Mass has the coolest helmet ever. It's just like this race helmet. Or it's a white helmet, but then it has like these blue motifs, and down to the mouthpiece, there's a, it's like a skull. It's really cool wow. looking. That's sick. Yeah, I really, really love it. Is this a different Yokin? Different Yokin. There's Yokin Rint and Yokin Mass. Two Yokins don't make it right. <laughs> the season that but followed. But they do make a great omelet. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> the season that followed was one that would become legendary. Uh -huh. Hunt battled it out with rival Ferrari driver Nicky Lauda, a war whose highlights included Lauda's near fatal crash at the Nurburgring, his subsequent return to the sport that same season and Hunt's third-place finish at the final race of the year that earned him the championship. It was Hunt's first and McLaren's second, but Nicky Lauda answered the next year with a championship run of his own. I'm sure we'll do a series on Hunt and Lauda's rivalry eventually, but if you want to know more about that right now, check out the movie Rush. It's very awesome. It's very Hollywood. Um... It's, and the, the racing footage is really cool. After Hunt's championship in 1976, McLaren started to fall off a bit. The new M26 was not a very good car. In 1977, the M26 was adapted to take advantage of ground effects. The chassis on ground effects car is designed like an upside down wing. Instead of relying solely on spoilers and winglets, the entire underside of the car is shaped like an airfoil. This creates a tremendous amount of downforce and glues the car to the track around turns. That's if it works. Because the M26 was not originally designed for that purpose in mind, Gordon Coppock's retrofits were unsuccessful. Hunt left the team after the 77 season. McLaren's slump was now in full swing. Philip Morris marketing head John Hogan was not pleased with the team. And for the next two years, Hogan would become increasingly frustrated with McLaren boss Teddy Mayer's management. I'm not happy, brother. <laughs> 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 if Marlboro was uh, going to continue their sponsorship of McLaren, something had to change. And you know what? Ron Dennis thought so, too. He had been watching from afar, hiding his intentions by keeping busy with Rondell Racing and that Project 4 we mentioned earlier. Uh, one important detail, guys, is that uh, Project 4 was able to secure none other than Nicky Lauda to pilot their car in the M1 Pro Series. Yeah, so these were... Uh, the BMW M1 was a mid-engine uh, BMW sports car, and what they would do is uh, at Formula One uh, weekends, they would take the fa five fastest uh, qualifying drivers and then have them race against lower-level drivers. And, and what? The, that all the seems cars, like a that's blowout. Awesome. All the cars were like identical, though. That's so, so it was sick. like a spec series with really fast drivers and guys that were on coming up. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, Lauda's M1 wore Mar the Marlboro signature red and white livery. I would love to drive that car yeah. every day. Yes, you would. And uh, yeah, just put a little pin in that for now, okay? So, Philip Morris marketing head John Hogan was frustrated with Teddy Mayer. I'm and, not happy, brother. And Rondell Project 4 chief Ron Dennis was taking interest. Ron saw a great opportunity to reignite those Formula One dreams he had back in 1974 before Motul had to pull out. So, what does he do? Well, he talks to Philip Morris marketing head John Hogan, 
He says, Hey, I have an idea. What if instead of sponsoring McLaren, Philip Morris buys a controlling stake in it? What if Philip Morris puts me, Ron Dennis, in charge? Philip Morris marketing head John Hogan liked the sound of that. So, I like the sound of that, brother. <laughs> so in 1980, Philip Morris bought half of McLaren Racing and changed its name to McLaren International and put Ron Dennis at the controls. Now, apparently... There are two sides to how this whole thing went down. Uh, some people say the acquisition was a hostile takeover and that Teddy Mayer and Gordon Kopic were pissed at Philip Morris's proposition. Some say that out of protest, they sold their shares in McLaren and just left. They were not happy uh, with it. Uh, however, Ron Dennis sees it differently. Turbocharging was on the horizon. It was becoming increasingly apparent. Uh, Teddy Mayer could see that it would be too expensive for McLaren to develop a competitive power plant, so he just gave in to the Marlboro ownership. When asked about it in a Formula1.com interview, Ron said, Initially it was a 50-50 deal, but after 18 months, and to my surprise, Teddy said he was becoming increasingly concerned about the prohibitive cost of turbocharged engines, and was ready to step away. So the opportunity arose for me to acquire controlling interests in the company, which, you know, I immediately did. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think it's likely that something kind of in between the two sides happened. Did Teddy Mayer and Gordon Kopic see Dennis coming in as a hostile takeover? Uh, Probably. Did they also realize how much money it would take to get back on the top? Absolutely. Uh, Did they also make a bunch of money selling their stock? Uh, I would imagine so. So in my research, base opinion, gentlemen, uh, it would have taken a miracle to get McLaren out of their slump on their own. The Marlboro takeover was probably the best option to save McLaren from the dustbin of vintage racing history. And I think uh, Philip Morris and Ron deserve some credit for not changing the name of the team, which they could have easily done. Yeah, the cigarettes. (laughs) So Ron was now in control of (laughs) McLaren. What would he do? How would he get the ship back on course? Well, in times of stress, sometimes it's best to take a pause and look at your old notes for inspiration. To save McLaren's future, they would have to go to the past and continue the McLaren tradition of advanced materials. Like they did with Malite back in the Cam-Am days, Ron Dennis knew McLaren had to advance motorsport once more to get back on top. Ron hired a guy who knew a thing or two about advancing motorsports, a little dude named John Bernard. Look, guys, we're going to have to need, we're going to have to use more balsa wood this season. (laughs) (laughs) Barnard had worked for a team called Chaparral. They were known for pushing the boundaries of both engineering and rulebook interpretation. The best known example of the team's ingenuity is the Chaparral 2J. This Can-Am car ran in the 1970 season and utilized a two-stroke engine mounted in the rear of the car to power two turbine fans. Uh, The fans produced a vacuum effect underneath the car, amounting to nearly one and a half Gs of downforce. It also had the tendency of shooting pebbles into the face of any driver (laughs) behind them. As a result, the 2J was often two seconds faster around the track than their closest competitors, Uh, That was when it worked. It was not a very reliable system, but it was extremely impressive. That's crazy. Just have little vacuums underneath your car. Mm -hmm. It's crazy looking. It looks like the Batmobile. It. It. I remember in Grand Grand Turismo Four, you could unlock the car, and that like 
11 years old, I was like, what the heck is this thing? (laughs) John Barnard worked on a Chaparral IndyCar called the 2K. It did not use fans to generate downforce, but a whole load of ground effects underneath. The 2K was reasonably successful, winning six races out of the 27 it started in. Not bad. Ron Dennis intended to use John Barnard's ground effects experience in McLaren's new car. The forces ground effects put on these cars were insane. If McLaren wanted to take advantage of them without ripping the new car apart, using new materials was a priority. They would use the most advanced material in the world at the time. It was called carbon fiber. (laughs) (laughs) There was just one problem. McLaren didn't know how to build with carbon fiber. The only people in the world who did built carbon fiber parts for airplanes. (laughs) So using that Marlboro money, Ron Dennis hired the people who built carbon fiber parts for airplanes to build McLaren's cars. Hercules Aerospace was a firm based in Salt Lake City, Utah, who had a lot of experience working with carbon fiber. Building the car was a deeply collaborative effort between the two companies. John Barnard designed the chassis and Hercules supplied the carbon fiber. McLaren engineer Steve Nichols spearheaded the chassis construction as he had experience working with carbon fiber because he had previously worked at Hercules. Hmm. dink, huh? That's called smart management. Yeah. What, Hiring the people what's to do like the thing. The, why is making carbon fiber so labor intensive? Like, why is it so hard? Well, I think it was, one, it was new. Um... And then that's a lot of carbon. Like diamonds are made out of carbon. Yeah, but carbon isn't carbon like the most plentiful element. Shut, shut up, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean you gotta weave it. Also, this was in nineteen yeah. in the early eighties. Uh, yeah, you gotta weave it. Manufacturing techniques had probably not uh, advanced very much at that time. Like these guys were on the bleeding edge of this of this stuff. The new car, dubbed the MP41, you ever heard of it? Was revolutionary. It was unlike anything else in the sport. Did you say heard of it because MP4? No, MP4. It's a famous one. It's MP4 famous one. Yeah. yeah, but like hear it like like a song on MP4. Uh, That's not I why I said it, but it is brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Barnard and Nichols were able to construct a monocoque haha, cabin for the driver, <laughs> an extremely rigid and safe place for the driver to be. Imagine a carbon fiber bathtub with every other component of the car attached to it in some way. And that is a monocoque. That's a, I mean, it's a very simplified way of looking at it, mm-hmm. but... The MP41's safety would be tested at the 1981 Italian Grand Prix at Monza. McLaren driver John Watson had an absolutely horrific crash at 150 miles per hour where the cockpit separated from the gearbox in fiery it's fashion. It's pretty scary. While the crash itself looks unsurvivable, The monocoque did its job, shielding Watson from the impact forces. The carbon construction no doubt saved his life, and he walked away from the crash that would have easily mangled, if not killed him, if he was in another car. He slides, hits the wall, the car basically explodes, but he walks away from the accident. That's That's crazy. crazy. Um, It's amazing. I smashed into the the edge at Racer's Edge yesterday. Okay, go-kart, electric go-karts, yeah. And my ribs feel like they're going to fall off today. 
Yeah, I mean that's probably the same forces that he was going through in his his crash. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's I mean, probably exactly the same. Where I like skill level is like. Yeah, you guys. I mean, you are very fast. So, dude, honestly though, Joe, pay attention to that. If one of your ribs does fall off, you should call a doctor. That is serious. <laughs> it's not supposed to happen. No, 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 yeah. no, 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 not even one. <laughs> but plus side, we get to eat that rib. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's man, your body making ribs. food, man. Probably, probably tastes so good. <laughs> Ron Dennis views carbon fiber as McLaren's biggest contribution to the sport, telling F1.com, quote, Without question, it's like the single biggest contributing factor to safety that there's like ever been in it. <laughs> Today, every serious racing car uses carbon fiber, not only in Formula One, but in all major single seater series, right? This sounds so like it's Russell like, Brand. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, hey, you're welcome. I mean, that's basically the attitude he's taking. Yeah. yeah. John Watson ended the 81 season in sixth. Uh, the new car was a clear step in the right direction. The team felt even better when they secured a new driver for the 1982 season. Former, pro- former Project 4 BMW M1 Pro Car Series driver Nicky Lauda. Hey, Nicky Lauda. It was Nicky Lauda. <laughs> he got Nicky Lauda. He's like, uh, pretty freaking good at race car driving. And uh, <laughs> yeah, big win for McLaren. A great guy to have on the team. Oh, welcome aboard, Mr. <laughs> Germany, because you're going to be going zip, zip, zoom in a McLaren auto car. <laughs> Lauda had actually retired from Formula One three years earlier after a disappointing two-year run with Brabham. After practice for the 1979 Canadian Grand Prix, Lauda got out of his car and announced his retirement. Uh, he didn't see any point in, quote, dri- driving in circles. Yeah, because his car was not very competitive. And he's just like, I'm f- done with this. Um, I'm going to go run my airline. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's what he did. But Ron Dennis was able to coax Lauda back into the sport with two things, a record $3 million salary from Marlboro and safety. Apparently, Nicky was very impressed with the survivability of the McLaren. Uh, you know, he knew a thing or two about safety because he was almost burned alive at the Nürburgring back in 76, racing against McLaren driver James Hunt, which we discussed. It's like, Nicky, man, like, I'll give you $3 million, which, you know, is a lot of Say money. Say no more. It's a lot of money now. <laughs> okay, great. Stop talking. Sure. I mean... We'll be right back with more of this story, but first, a word from our sponsors. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. 
So with a little cash in his pocket and a safe car to hold him, Nicky Lauda piloted the McLaren for the 1982 F1 season. Despite Ron putting a huge check on the table, Marlboro still needed convincing that Lauda would be competitive. And I see where they're coming from. I mean, Nicky hadn't won a title in five years, and his last season at Brabham was mediocre at best. A raging dumpster fire at times. Lauda put Marlboro's fears straight to bed like it was a little baby in his third race back in F1 when he won the U.S. Grand Prix at Long Beach, LBC. Nicky finished the season in fifth place, and after a string of car retirements, the next season finished 10th in 1983. But the best was yet to come for McLaren and Mr. Nicky Lauda. Ron Dennis and the team were quite satisfied with the chassis design. Evolutions of the MP4-1 were a joy to drive on track, but its weak spot was power. The naturally aspirated Cosworth DFV V8 engine was a legend in the sport, uh, employed by many, many racing teams. If you want to learn more about that, check out our Up to Speed episode on YouTube's on Cosworth. We talk about the DFV quite a bit. That thing was a screamer. Also, uh, Ford put a DFV in oh, a yeah. van. Yeah, that's so sick. Yeah. Was that the Supervan? Supervan 3, baby. Oh, my God. So cool. But there was a revolution on the horizon called turbocharging. Turbocharger. Turbos use exhaust gases to spin a two-sided turbine. <laughs> the gases spin one side that is connected by rod to an inlet turbine on the other. The inlet side forces more air into your cylinders, which is then paired with more fuel to make a little more power, baby. <laughs> more power, baby. <laughs> <laughs> the first team to utilize turbocharging was Renault in 1977. Uh, we should uh, <laughs> While the power output was impressive, allowing the Renault to reach insane speeds, the car's reliability was dreadful. Oh no, the car she broke again. <laughs> Over three seasons, the Turbo Renault RS01 scored just three points. And uh, trois <laughs> points. <laughs> but that didn't stop other teams from seeing the potential, including McLaren and Ron Dennis. Uh, but like we discussed earlier, developing a turbocharged engine would be very expensive. More expensive than... It's, it's expensive now. Yeah. It's expensive now just to build one. If you want to learn more about that, check out our series High Low Season 2, currently streaming on Facebook Watch. Season 1 on both Facebook Watch and the YouTubes. More expensive than Marlboro could afford. So Ron went abroad to search for some more money. More money, baby. <laughs> Who he found was a man named Mansour Ojej. Oja. Oja. Mansour Oja. It's O-J-J-E-H. I don't know how to pronounce that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mansour. Mansour. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I like that. Mansoor, oh yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> who ran a company called TAG. Ooh. TAG stood for Technique de Avant-Garde. Uh, the company was a holding firm, uh, which means they gave people investment funds to start companies or ventures, and in return, uh, TAG got a piece of the company. Is this the same, like... This is TAG, TAG. TAG her? her? Yes. Uh, TAG bought a part of TAG Hur, Hur, TAG Hauer. TAG Hur. Uh, Hur. I'm doing some research. I don't think that they own it anymore, uh, but Tag Tag Hoor is still called Tag Hoor. Yeah, rich guys love cars and they love watches. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the deal with McLaren was no different. Oh, yeah, got a share of McLaren, <laughs> and McLaren got money to develop their engine. Ron Dennis took that cash over to Porsche. 
At first, Porsche power plant engineer Hans Metzger was skeptical. He did not think a turbocharged engine was viable, but Ron was persistent. He argued that a turbo engine would allow his car to handle even better. How is that? How is that, James? Well, a turbo engine can produce more torque than a naturally aspirated one, which means the team could run more downforce because it had more oomph against drag. And that was all it took to convince Hans. And development began. After some debate about engine placement, McLaren and Porsche agreed to an 80-degree twin-turbo V6 arrangement. The engine made its debut near the end of the 83 season at the Dutch Grand Prix. Nicky Lauda was worried that the engine would not be ready for the coming 84 season, so being the proactive man he was, he went to Marlboro behind Ron's back and convinced them to push Porsche to let them test the engine in the last races of 1983. That way, all the kinks would be worked out, and they could hit the ground running in 84, 11 years before Post Malone was born. Nice. Ron Dennis did not appreciate Nicky's rung jumping. Is that what they call it when you go above your boss's head? Jump, jumping rungs, baby. Jumping rungs. Uh, but the sly maneuvering paid off. In the first race of the 84 season, Nicky's teammate, Alan Prost, won at Rio. Uh, during the season, tag Porsche McLaren was able to ring the engine out to nearly 12,000 RPM and make Dude, what a power team! 820 horsepower during races. Uh, but in qualifying trim, that number was bumped up to 870 horsepower. Oh, God. That's <laughs> a lot of power. By the end of the season, Nicky Lauda had bested his teammate, Alan Prost, by just half a point. And uh, that's because a, a race was canceled halfway through, and they took the points, they took the standings and gave people points for that. Um, and won his third driver's championship behind the wheel of a McLaren. Prost finished second which earned McLaren their second Constructors' Championship. Ron Dennis's wheelin' dealin' had paid off, and 84 was just the beginning. The next year, it was Prost's turn to win the WDC, the World Drivers' Championship, and Lauda suffering a long string of retirements. So, McLaren still snatched the Constructors' Championship, bringing their count to three. Nicky left the team after that season, feeling he had achieved all he could in the sport, preferring to focus on his airline business. In 1986... Prost won his second driver's title. There was no question. The McLaren slump was over thanks to the acumen of Ron Dennis and his devoted team. McLaren finished second in the Constructors' Championship the next year with their title taken by fellow British team Williams Honda. Ron Dennis wasn't worried, though, because he had a secret one-two punch for the 88 season. One fist was called Gordon Murray. Murray was a designer for Brabham race cars and took John Barnard's job as McLaren's technical director. Gordon would design the cars and Steve Nichols would build them. Ron's second fist was a dude named Arrington Senna. You ever heard of him, you nerds? <laughs> Arrington Senna was... Ayrton, just Ayrton, there's no Ayrton N. Arrington <laughs> Senna was born in Sao Paulo, Brazil in 1960. When he was four years old, his father, Milton, built a go-kart for his young son and put him behind the wheel. From the jump, the kid had a natural ability. At age nine, he was competing in neighborhood kart races, and at 13, he had his first official win. After winning the 1977 South American Karting Championship, Ayrton quickly rose through the single-seater ranks, and in 1984, he made his Formula U debut racing for a lesser-known team called Tolman. Before signing with them, Senna had tested with many teams, including McLaren, but they had a stacked lineup until 1988. 
McLaren's number two driver, Stefan Johansson, was booted and his seat was given to Ayrton. While the partnership would prove to be extremely fruitful for McLaren, the relationship between Senna and his teammate Alan Prost was less than amiable, okay? While the men were teammates, that didn't mean they had to be friends. Senna was intently focused on winning, even if that meant going to all-out war with Prost. Throughout the season, the McLaren team traded 1-2 finishes back and forth. The new MP44, powered by a new Honda power unit, was proving to be McLaren's most dominant car yet. They sound so sick. These cars are incredible. Tensions between Senna and Prost reached a boiling point at the Portuguese Grand Prix when Alan went for an extremely risky pass on Ayrton down the main straight. Ayrton tried to cover the pass by darting inside towards the pit wall, and Prost called his bluff. Instead of lifting and conceding the attempt, he shot his car inside the gap between Senna and the wall. And on his way past Senna, let, uh, Prost's left side tires bumped against the right tires of Senna's car. This could have ended the McLaren team's day, but fortunately, both drivers were able to recover, and Allen made it past. From that day on, the two McLaren drivers were locked in a rivalry that would last over half a decade. Things got so bad between Senna and Prost that Ayrton wouldn't even speak Prost's name. Say his name. No. no. <laughs> Just say it. No. <laughs> McLaren drivers were so far beyond any other team driver talent and equipment-wise that the only competition was with each other, so that's what they focused on. Bruce McLaren's dream of dominating Formula One was coming true. Ron believed it was because of his hand-chosen staff and the way Ron Dennis ran McLaren. That reminds me. We should talk about how Ron ran McLaren. Back when Ron took over, McLaren was very much a racer's race team. The guys driving the cars were often getting their hands dirty working on them. There was little attention paid to shop hygiene. It was very rough and tumble. Uh, this did not jive well with Ron. Despite being a mechanic, Ron hated getting his hands dirty. In a later interview with the Financial Times, Ron had this to say about cleanliness in his shop. I mean, the whole process of working shouldn't make you dirty. That's what's unique about our organization. We brought to bear standards where people don't have to experience that. <laughs> that <laughs> does not like sound anything like William Gallagher. <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, so uh, there's... And then he f does that two-finger flip-off. Yeah. Oh, plunk off. <laughs> hey, um, now, now plunk off, mate. <laughs> It was like uh, that article you sent me. No matter how dirty he was, he would go home and within a half an hour, I'd be just like sparkling clean. And doesn't seem like a guy who would hang out in a garage all it day. It doesn't. Ron's idea of a shop looked more like an Apple store than a place to work on cars. Rumor has it that Ron employed a man to walk the halls and change any burned out light bulbs. Ron also insisted that the climate control be set to 21 degrees Celsius, which is 69.8 degrees Fahrenheit. Nice. The temperature Ron believed to be the most optimal for work. <laughs> Ron demanded perfection. Now, I wasn't able to confirm this rumor, guys, but it has been said multiple times that Ron gets the gravel in his driveway washed once a year. How does that, like... Like, they scrape it all up, wash it, and put it back. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh... I mean, it kind of sounds like BS to me, but... It's also like, at but, that point, why would you get gravel and yeah, not get like a, driveway. a driveway? I don't know. But uh, everything else about Ron kind of makes me think it's true, you know? Yeah. Ayrton Senna beat Alan Prost for the 1988 title. It seems that history repeats itself because Alan paid Senna back by winning his 89 title, just like 
Uh, he had paid back Lauda four years earlier. No love was lost between the two drivers as Senna won back-to-back titles in 1990 and 91, which also brought McLaren's Constructor Championship count up to six. The Senna-Prost team had a legendary run and cemented McLaren as one of the greatest teams ever. And don't worry, Senna fans, we're going to be doing a much deeper dive on Senna uh, in the future. This is already a super long script, so I didn't want to go mm-hmm. even further yeah, into it. Yeah, and there's so much to cover. Yeah, they're really, like... it. I want to do it justice because and it's kind of the perfect medium for it because we can't show any footage. <laughs> that is like, okay. So yeah, we get questions like, "Hey, why haven't you done Senna on up to speed yet?" It's because, well, understandably, the Senna family is very protective of any footage of Senna, uh, which I totally get and don't blame them for, uh, and that's just why we haven't done it yet. And also, F one is very. Um I don't yeah. know. I mean, it's like they're, um, they're protect. Like, yeah, we have an F one uh, episode of Up to Speed that got taken down by F one. Yeah. So, I mean, I get it. Then in 1992, McLaren revealed its first road car. Oh, and what a road car it was! It was designed by Gordon Murray. The McLaren F one was the dream of many high performance drivers at the time, and kids named Joe at the time, and friggin' everybody who's ever seen one. It was low weight, high power. The design team at McLaren were intent on designing what they dreamed as the ultimate road car, hoping to draw from their experience at Formula One to create a car that could redefine the term supercar. The ideals of the F1 were born out of Gordon Murray's love of the Honda NSX. The moment I drove the Honda NSX, all the benchmark cars I had been using as references in the development of my car vanished from my mind. Honda had used their valuable experience working with McLaren to develop the NSX, incorporating features like a monocoque chassis, double wishbone suspension, and a mid-engine configuration. While other companies had focused entirely on speed, the NSX tried to strike a balance between performance and comfort. Honda even enlisted Senna to develop the car. His major critique of the NSX prototype? She's too soft. So, Honda made it stiffer. The NSX was a wonderful car, but Murray knew the F1 had to be faster. The McLaren F1 was an analog machine in a digital age. There were no driver aids of any kind. Weight was saved in every way possible, from being designed around the first road-use carbon fiber chassis to even constructing the trunk toolkit from titanium because it weighed 50% less than traditional tools. Each carbon fiber chassis required over 3,000 hours to produce. Uh, 3,000 hours of labor, I'm sure it didn't take 3,000 hours from beginning to end. Honda turned down McLaren's initial request to design a V10 or V12 engine for the F1. So a naturally aspirated BMW V12, making 620 horsepower, was chosen to power this modern marvel. The V12 (laughs) engine had a tendency of running very hot under load. So when it came time to choose a material for heat deflection, the best choice for the job was gold. Gold. It, the, yeah, it, that gold. Yeah, the engine bays are uh, not plated, but uh, mm-hmm. gold foil. Mm-hmm. Like You a, know, gold member, that stuff he was obsessed okay. with. Okay. Uh, <laughs> each element of the car was meticulously designed and gone over with a fine-tooth comb. The computer-controlled air brake allowed for rapid stopping at high speeds. Each needle on the hand-painted dash was individually machined. Even the throttle pedal was handcrafted out of six separate pieces of titanium to save weight, but also demonstrate the amount of care that went into each inch 
of the McLaren F1. Yeah, but that gold, though. Okay. How about that gold? One million dollars. <laughs> <laughs> no expense was spared in designing the car that would become known as the fastest naturally aspirated car in the world, achieving a maximum speed of 240.1 miles per hour. It's that point one that makes all the difference. Yeah, for sure. At that speed. The everyone held the fastest production car speed record all the way until the release of the Bucati Veyron in 2005. That's crazy. Still, over 20 years later, the F1 still holds the fastest production speed record for a naturally aspirated car. Of the 107 F1s produced, only 64 ever left the factory as road legal machines. Some owners include Ralph Lauren. He owns three of them. Jay Leno. The Sultan of Brunei, who owns eight, and even Elon Musk has one. Rowan Atkinson, a.k.a. Mr. Bean, has stated that one of the greatest experiences of his life was going on a five-hour drive with his children on each side in a centrally mounted seat after first taking delivery of the car. That sounds like a delightful day. Yeah, yeah it does. he wrecked one. Yeah. Mr. Bean? Mr. Bean wrecked a McLaren F1. And then he what? paid to have it repaired. Yeah. In 1994, the McLaren F1 could be purchased for $850,000. But today, if we're talking about today, mm -hmm. you want to know what they go for today? Uh, yep. Yeah. $19.8 million. <laughs> Between 92 and 93, things weren't looking hot at McLaren. Their Honda V12 power unit was no longer the fastest on the grid and was being bested by the Renault V10 used by Williams. At the end of 92, Honda exited the sport, Bang. and Ron placed an unsuccessful bid to get his hands on those Renault V10s. Uh, Alan Prost was now at Williams and had a clause in his contract that allowed him to bar any potential teammates from joining the team. Uh, Senna really wanted to drive at Williams, but Alan blocked it, so Senna reluctantly agreed to drive the underpowered McLaren in 1993. Uh, Alan Prost won the driver's title that year. The next year, Senna was signed to Williams with new teammate Damon Hill. The team's third race of the year was at the San Marino Grand Prix, which took place at Imola. During qualifying, Simtech Ford driver Roland Ratzenberger experienced a critical wing failure, which lodged underneath his car at 180 miles per hour. Ratzenberger lost control of his car and crashed into a wall at speed. He suffered a basal skull fracture and was pronounced dead at the hospital. It was an extremely painful reminder that Formula One was still deadly. After qualifying, the drivers resolved to demand better safety for drivers and formed the Grand Prix Drivers Association. Ayrton volunteered to be the association's leader. The next day, Ayrton Senna started the race in pole position and fought a fierce battle to keep drivers Michael Schumacher and Gerard Berger behind him. On lap seven, Senna inexplicably lost control of his Williams hitting an unprotected concrete wall at 135 miles an hour. The car's suspension broke, and the front right tire hit Ayrton in the head. He was airlifted to a hospital and pronounced dead that evening. Formula One's, and by extension McLaren's, greatest driver was gone. There is much speculation as to what caused Senna's crash. Uh, there is even a lengthy trial to determine the cause, but that is a story for another episode. His death sent shockwaves through the entire racing world, and even though he wasn't driving at McLaren at the time, the team was deeply affected regardless. When asked about Senna's legacy in 2014, Ron had this to say. He's remembered because he was just so unbelievably competitive. Dennis said. He was great, but he had good human values. 
He had a few lapses in his life, but he was incredibly principled, and he was a good human being. Between 1994 and 1998, McLaren did not win a world championship and struggled to remain a top team. They finished fourth four years in a row. That was until 1998. A rule change for the new season meant the cars were narrower, and McLaren did the best job adapting their car to the new rules. At the first race, McLaren driver Mika Hakkinen was a half-second faster than reigning champ Michael Schumacher in his Ferrari. Hakkinen went on to win the Drivers' Championship that year and returned the Constructors' Championship back to McLaren. Hakkinen scored a second Drivers' Championship in 1999 the next year, and Ferrari took back the trophy, uh, the Constructors' Trophy. The last McLaren driver to win a championship at the time of this recording was Lewis Hamilton in 2008. Just one year before, it was revealed that some McLaren personnel had accepted stolen Ferrari blueprints and used them to their advantage. Uh, it was never clear how much Ron Dennis knew about these blueprints, but McLaren had been leading the 07 Constructors' Championship, but the FIA, Formula One's sanctioning body, stripped the team of all their points when it was determined that they had those blueprints. The whole scandal was known as Spygate, and if you'd like to know more, Wired.com has a really great piece on the subject by Mark Seal. Uh, it's, it's, it really lays it out. It's, a, it's an insane story. After the F1 road car, McLaren had taken a break from releasing production cars. While a partnership between Mercedes-Benz and McLaren resulted in the sick-looking McLaren uh, Mercedes SLR McLaren, Produced between 2003 and 2010, McLaren did not develop their own car again until the McLaren MP412C in 2011. But why did they decide to start building it in the first place? Well, Ron told Evo Magazine in 2009, When I stood in the pit lane three years ago, I realized there was only one other team that had been there in 1966, and that was Ferrari. And I started to think about all the teams that had come and gone, and I suddenly realized the measures we've embraced as a Formula One team to reduce costs put us under a lot of pressure. How do we maintain the level of workforce that we've got? Hopefully, our automotive group, as it grows, provide part of the solution to those problems. In a separate interview with F1.com, Ron had this to say about which was a more powerful motivator, making money or doing well at the track. Making money is a peripheral goal for me. Always has been, always will be. Other things motivate me far more compellingly. Besides, from a business point of view, making money is merely the opposite of losing money. Losing money <laughs> means your company is failing, whereas making money means your company is succeeding. And I want McLaren to succeed. Again, always have, always will. I, mean, that's, I don't... That's I so don't, profound. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> I don't know if I'm too dumb to understand what he's saying with that. No, that's pretty dumb. <laughs> no, it's not. Kind of. What like, is he like? What is he saying though? He's saying, yeah, you gotta make money. I know, but like, when you, you get down but, to it, business but, isn't hard. Just make money. It's how you. But make that's money, not a profound hard. thing to say. That's obvious. Yeah. <laughs> but he, but he's also saying that like. So the question was like, which is more important to you, winning or making money? And he's like, well, he's saying winning money is peripheral right so like he's like yeah making money is never my focus also in a business as long as you're not losing money you're quote-unquote making money and then you're succeeding so he's, he's not like i'm he's not trying to exponentially grow the brand year over year hand over fist he's just saying like as long as i'm not losing money i'm fine 
So like, obviously winning is my main focus. But how you put it is way more eloquent. Thank yeah. you. Than saying, you. yeah, losing I mean, money means your company is failing, yeah. whereas making money means you're succeeding. Like, yeah. I mean, I'm, you're you know, one of the most quotable dudes <laughs> in the, on the planet right now. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, do people wear t-shirts with my quotes on them? Yes, yes, they do. Yes, <laughs> All they right. Do. All right. Calm down. Calm down. While the MP412C was pretty amazing, it didn't have the same impact as the old McLaren. It's got F1. a bad name. It's, honestly. it's real. That's branding is yeah, one yeah, issue. Yeah. So to get people excited about McLaren again, the P1 <sighs> was announced only a year later at the 2012 Paris Motor Show. And just thinking about the P1 makes my wiener tickle a little bit. Nice. <laughs> the coolest car ever. Well, sit right there, James. <laughs> the P1 was designed as a spiritual successor to the F1. According to the design team, every pot was given the same aerodynamic consideration as if it were part of an aircraft or a Formula Un car. When it came down to it, their policy was form equals function. Ooh. The sleek aerodynamic design generated 600 kilograms or 1,323 pounds of downforce at 160 wow, miles per nuts. hour. That is the equivalent of one and one-third grand pianos <laughs> being placed on top of your car, holding you to the road. That's a lot of pianos. That helped my Mustang for sure. Yeah. The car was given a shrink-wrapped body design. According to McLaren's design director, Frank Stevenson, it is a car with absolutely no fat between the mechanicals in the skin. It's as though we stuck a tube inside and sucked all the air out. A dramatic, honest shape, but also a very beautiful one. I just want to suck the air out of you. I just want to suck the air out of you. <laughs> The lightweight, no-frills design allowed for a power-to-weight ratio of 3.3 pounds per horse per. In comparison, a 2020 Mazda Miata has a power-to-weight ratio of 12.9 pounds Whoa. per horsepower. And that's a car widely considered to have an amazing drive experience due to its power-to-weight ratio. It is an amazing driving experience. The 177 horsepower hybrid electric engine allowed for the car to fill in gaps as the turbos on the twin turbo 3.8 liter V8 spooled up and provided instant torque and acceleration, creating a combined 903 horsepower. So Each component of the car was optimized to be as lightweight and practical as possible, a perfect continuation of the F1's legacy. Yeah, I think that's for me, like. What was it? Ten years ago, when the P1 came out, the uh, La Ferrari, La Ferrari, and then Porsche 918. Mm -hmm. Those were all kind of like the hypercars du jour of the time. Mm -hmm. P1 for me is like my favorite one. It's of all so those. good looking. Yeah, it is just. And I'm not like a huge hypercar fan. Yeah, but same. the McLaren P1 is just one of the coolest cars. It's amazing. Isn't it like really stripped down inside? Like there's no for AC. There's no. Oh no, it does. Oh, I'm not yeah. sure. It's not. I mean, it's like a road car. But is this the like? Um, I'm thinking. Of oh, the you're thinking of the you're thinking of the yeah, yeah. Okay. Production of the P1 was strictly limited to 375 units to maintain exclusivity. Despite a minor recall of 132 P1s due to issues with the hood latch releasing while driving, oops, the car sold very well. Can you imagine that? <laughs> no. <laughs> Um, completing its three-year production run by December of 2015. The P1 was designed as the company's halo car, capturing public interest and sparking new belief in the competency and the value of the brand. It was a symbol to show that while McLaren may not directly be breaking speed records, they could still hold their own. Yeah, I remember when the car came out, not that I'm like a supercar expert or anything, uh, but... When that came out, like it was just the P1 and the 412C, 
And but it was like, oh man, like these guys are like McLaren's back really. And yeah. all the cars following the P one kind of share that same design language in terms of the headlights. Yeah, the headlights is the McLaren logo. Yeah, it's very cool. Yeah. In 2016, Ron Dennis's time with McLaren came to an end. It was not a surprise to anyone who was paying attention, though. Tensions were high between Ron and his old friend, Monsieur Oh Yeah. Uh, <laughs> his partner who had helped spur McLaren's rebirth so many years before. What a name. Monsieur Oh Yeah. Reports as early as 2013 indicated that Monsieur wanted Ron out, and Ron countered by offering to buy a controlling stake in the company once again, but that didn't happen. Ron made matters worse in 2015 when he fired team principal Martin Whitmarsh, one of Monsoor's best buds, while Martin was recovering from a lung transplant. Jeez. Bad timing. Yeah. Ron was also having a hard time finding a new title sponsor for McLaren. Yeah, they weren't doing so well at the track, so no multinational corporation wanted their name on the car. Technically, Ron had failed to do his job. Apparently, in the end, Ron was given the chance to step down quietly, but... When was that ever like Ron? He had given most of his life to McLaren and made the team a legend. He didn't go quietly. He released a statement saying that he had been forced out and that McLaren f***ed up. There was going to be, in his statement, he says that there's going to be consequences. Not like Papa John consequences. That was the day of reckoning. I've ordered 40 McLarens in the past three days. <laughs> Today, McLaren is run by American Zach Brown. The, the Zach Brown band, the guy who sings Chicken Fried? Same guy, yeah. Uh, oh. the, <laughs> the company is still following through on Ron's plan of, quote, broadening the brand to ensure the survival of the Formula One team as well as other operations inside McLaren. McLaren Electronics manufactures the standard ECU unit for every F1 team as well as an IndyCar. Uh, McLaren also serves the medical sector with telemetry equipment built by McLaren Applied Technologies. McLaren currently has 13 different models in their lineup, which ensures that their legacy isn't going away anytime soon. Uh, I want to end this series with a quote from the man himself, Bruce McLaren, and I think it really sums up what makes McLaren so special. It perfectly embodies the obsession that drives the people who work there over the years. People like Bruce, Gordon Kopic, Ron Dennis, and Ayrton Senna. James? No matter where you go, people will ask you for the secret of success in motor racing and why some drivers are better than others. The answer is the same as for nine out of 10 other sports. The first essential is enthusiasm. Not just mild, but burning enthusiasm. To succeed in motor racing or in any other sport, it must be the most important thing in your life. This goes for many things other than motor racing in particular or sports in general. Because if it isn't the most important thing to you, there are a dozen other people for whom it is. And those are the people that you have to beat. That's my favorite quote I've ever read. So uh, that was, that was in, in his autobiography that he wrote when he was like 25 years old. Yeah, when you were researching this episode, yeah. you texted it to me and I posted it on Instagram. Yeah, <laughs> I, so I, I read it five times. I was like, how does this kid... Who my yeah. younger than me when he wrote it? Yeah, like speak so eloquently and just nail it, really. Yeah, you know, yeah, because like you just there's people that would kill to have your job. You gotta you gotta make sure that you're better than them. Yeah, you know? and I think we're very fortunate to have the jobs that we have. But I can honestly say that I'm 100 percent obsessed with Donut. Yeah, and I think we 
almost require everyone who works with us to be. So. It's called having an unhealthy work-life balance. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. Hey, thanks for listening to Fast Gas. Uh, I think this is a pretty pretty fun series. This is our longest episode yet, I believe. Um, follow James on all social media at James Pumphrey. Follow Joe Weber at Dark underscore Webinar. I changed my Twitter to be that too. Oh, great. great. Okay, cool. Uh, I laugh every... I, I, I think that's the funniest username ever. I'm glad uh, that people get it, because yeah. it sounds really dumb. <laughs> <laughs> uh, follow Nolan at Nolan J. Sykes, and if you want to know what we got coming up at Donut, you want some behind-the-scenes, some sneaky peekies, follow Donut at Donut Media across all social media. If you don't know already, we have a YouTube channel called Donut Media. Um want to get yourself some donut merch go to donutmedia.com uh also if you want to work with us um there's a link on our website uh called jobs and uh we'll tell you how to apply that's right do you want to hear how to pronounce oh yeah yes yeah okay oh jj i think that's a good place to end all right i love you <laughs> be kind see you next time Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.